Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You may be seated. We just offered the new, the blessing for the new moon of Tammuz, and Tammuz has in it a fast day, Shiva Sarba Tammuz, which demarcates three weeks of time of mourning for the destruction of the temple. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, I'm going to give you a synopsis of exactly what led to the destruction of the temple. I'm going to modernize it, but just a very, very little bit. And for those of you who have studied this text before, or perhaps with me, you'll know that the adaptations that I'm making aren't so wildly different than exactly what the text offers in the Talmud. It's a story of a man who decided for whatever reason to have a party, a big party. And he invites many different people in the community to come to this party. And he's done so well and has so many invites, he decides to hire a party planner. And in hiring the party planner, he gives the party planner an invitation list of who to include and who not to include. And he made it specific to the party planner. He says, whatever you do, make sure that Mr. Goldberg is invited. But whatever you do, don't invite Mr. Goldman. Well, the party planner is human and does what any and all of us do all the time, and that is made a mistake. He confused Goldberg and Goldman. And what ended up happening is the party planner invites Goldman, and Goldman shows up at the party. The names that are used in the Talmud are Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. We're going to call them Goldberg and Goldman. So the person who the host absolutely didn't want at the party shows up at the party. The host comes out and he sees Goldman's there, and he's furious. And he says to him, Get out of my party. And Goldman is mortified because there are all these people around. He says, I'll tell you what. Let, let me stay. I don't want to leave. Probably doesn't want to make a scene. Doesn't want to feel badly. I'll pay for my own way. The host of the party says, no. Get out of my party. Goldman says, look, I, I, I don't want to be embarrassed. Let, let me stay and I'll pay for half of the guests that are here. Just don't cause me this embarrassment. The host of the party says, no, get out of my party. Goldman then says, I'll pay for everyone who's here. I'll pay for every single person. Just please, please let me stay. And the host said, no. He kicked him out. And all of the guests looked on. And amongst the guests were Rabbanim Vishoftim were rabbis and judges. They looked on. And the man left, so embarrassed, so mortified, and so angry that he went to the Roman council and made up lies about what was happening at the party. And the Roman council then went to investigate the party, and that led to the destruction of the temple. That is the story that's given in the Talmud for exactly how it is that the temple fell. The temple that we commemorate in so many different forms through our prayers and that we lament and that we miss. The temple 
that we cry for and tear our clothes for and dedicate a day of mourning for. All because of the concept of sinachinam, because of the concept of inner hatred, and because the man couldn't find it within his soul to let him stay. Now you and I, we could sit here and we could unpack this text for days and weeks and months of all the different circles and cycles that could have prevented this from happening. And there were many that could have prevented this from happening. But there was one in particular, one thing that didn't happen that could have happened that would have been an absolute game changer. And that is the Rabbanim and the Shoftim's silence. There were rabbis in the community and judges in the community, elders and political leaders, and they sat on and they said nothing. They didn't say a word. And Goldman, who was so profoundly hurt and embarrassed by the process, he says, Their silence was like a scent. It was as if to say their silence was in favor of their behavior because they didn't stand up and protest. They didn't come and try and make peace. They didn't come and try and make a way for it to happen. They stood there in silence. And because of that silence, nothing happened. And he was kicked out. And now we know the fate of the Jewish people in the temple as a result of that action. Just imagine for a moment that one or two, or three, or five of those rabbis, or elders, or judges, or political leaders came forward and said to the host, listen, he's here. He's going to leave early. Let him stay. He'll pay for his own way. You're causing an embarrassment. What if they would have come up and admonished him and said, what you're doing is more wrong because you're causing him an embarrassing situation in front of the masses, and the Torah forbids this, and we can't celebrate if you won't allow him to be here. We're going to walk out with him. What if they would have said, listen, he's going to stand in the corner, we're going to talk to him for a few minutes, and then he's going to go. There are a thousand different ways and vehicles and avenues they could have found to mitigate the severity of this man's ostracism. But they chose none. They chose silence. And what Goldman says is, their silence is assent. It's a way of saying that they were in agreement through silence. Silence can be, at times, an incredibly dangerous thing. Because there are times in our world, sadly, when we are required, mandated, morally, halakhically, emotionally, to find our voice and to use it. Not just an inner voice, but an outer voice. And if we don't, then perhaps we are part of a problem when we could be part of an important solution. Two things happened in the last two weeks in the news that fall neatly into this conversation. They're heavy topics, and in no way do I cast any judgment or do I make any allegation, but rather just share what has become part of public information with you. The first is from a New York Times article just over a week ago about a rabbi in Riverdale at an Orthodox synagogue, who I happen to know, who was outed in a story for a behavior 
that I find morally reprehensible. The rabbi had the particular custom and habit of inviting young kids, boys, ages 10 to 25, in all the different avenues he'd have in life, to play squash with him, and then to go to the sauna and schwitz at whatever the local place was that they would do. And he would engage in long conversations in the sauna and schwitz, where boys, of course, wouldn't be dressed and he wouldn't be dressed, which obviously crossed an incredibly inappropriate moral line, even though no criminal activity had occurred. These are the allegations against him. The real criminal act here, as I see it, besides what he did, what was so morally wrong and upsetting, is that his congregation and the leadership and the leadership of the movement of which he's a part of spoke to him almost 20 years ago and said, what you're doing is not right. It's not appropriate. It's causing others to feel unwelcome and uncomfortable, and you need to stop it now what they would call in the legal form to cease and desist. And that movement and that synagogue never shared it with a person, never shared it with the world, didn't do anything. They just stayed silent. And sadly, that rabbi chose not to listen to those two parties that spoke to him and continued in this morally reprehensible behavior. When it was found out that this rabbi was going to begin to teach a series of classes at a particular school where one person who was the subject of these sauna talks or schwitz talks was, and his children went to this school now, he was worried sick that now a new generation, including his kids, would be subject to a person who was tickling the line of what pedophilia was. So... He came out. He decided to listen to his voice. He decided to be courageous, and he had the rabbi investigated publicly and not privately. And what became clear in this investigation is that on multiple occasions, he was spoken to by his rabbinic board, by the Orthodox Union board, by his synagogue board, but they continued to sweep the issue and the instances under a carpet. And as a result of it, the carpet became so lumpy that people were tripping over it. It sounds exactly the same to me as a few years ago when we were investigating Jerry Sandusky, the assistant coach at Penn State, who was engaged in what was criminal behavior with young boys, luring them into locker rooms and showers, And those who were part of the football program knew how impressive of a coach he was and didn't want to jeopardize him, and they stayed silent. And because they stayed silent, young boys who are now adults had their childhood and their souls raped from them, taken away in a way that can never be fully returned. And if one person one leader would have spoken out. It could have saved countless boys' emotional scarring and trauma of which is unspeakable and unthinkable of how much damage it has done. One person, that's all it took. Penn State responded swiftly, so did the NCAA. They took away 
Joe Paterno's bust, his picture that was there, and they eradicated all of his wins, as if to say his silence was condoning the behavior. And we can't acknowledge the wins and the deification of Joe Paterno, this incredible coach, if he stood silent in the wake of this crime. Shame on him. And the response was swift and appropriate. But nothing can bring back that trauma. You might have read in the paper on Thursday that Pope Francis, someone who I haven't had the privilege of meeting, but I have been in awe of his incredible leadership and his down-to-earth style and the way that he is taking bold and measured steps to help change the Catholic Church and to integrate so many different disparate parts of the faith-based communities together. He decided to make an unprecedented move, a tribunal that he was putting together where bishops who were part of the hierarchical system and were covering up scandals of abuse by priests, by priests would now be subject to investigation and could be subject to losing their positions and other censures as appropriately deemed by the church. It basically was saying that these bishops in the triangular hierarchical formation of the church could no longer cover up these scandals and be free from impunity. Because, why? Because of what it was that they were a part of. Pope Francis was saying that as the leader, he has a responsibility, not just a choice, but a responsibility to use his voice, to speak from his soul, and to say, we can't cover up these crimes. Because if we do, we're not just covering up a crime, we're an accomplice to a crime. And these crimes are incredibly egregious. And it's our responsibility to use our voice. Many of you know, and those of you who don't will soon learn, that my oldest brother, Gabriel, died 19 years ago this July. He committed suicide. We found out after he died that as a young teenage boy, he lived in a boarding yeshiva, and he was sexually abused and molested repeatedly by the head of the yeshiva, a rabbi who has since died by the name of Rabbi Abraham Shapiro. He took away my brother's life, as I see it, and so many other young boys who have been traumatized and had their souls ripped from them by this horrible monster of a human being. Every day, there's not an hour that passes that I don't wish for a time machine, some magic button, some person who could come out and who would have spoken out. The most painful part of me and my brother's death, besides all of the pieces that come with it, is the part that realizing were someone to have spoken out when this act was happening, or someone were to have spoken out after it had happened, which is eventually what happened and how we found out about Gabe's abuse and trauma, then perhaps, perhaps, no guarantees, it would have helped us calibrate and dial in even closer, more sensitively, with more understanding of what it was he was dealing with and been a different level of support in response to what he was dealing with and grappling with each day what it was that was taken from him. But because no one spoke out, perhaps out of fear, 
perhaps out of frustration, perhaps out of deference for the rabbi and his reputation, my brother's life was taken away because there was silence and it was seen and obviously a form of accomplice and assent. In the Parsha we read today, there are two out of 12 spies that use their voice. Kalev and Yehoshua go against the grain. Even though they could easily go with the flow and not deal with the challenge, they listen to their souls and they speak up and they use their backbone with courage. Ometz. They stand up and they say, I got to tell you what I really feel and what I really believe. Even though it's not part of the majority. Even though it's not part of the popular consensus. Even though I might be ostracized for using my voice, I have to do it. And as a result of doing it, it changes our fate. Because they used their voice and they used their courage and they weren't a part of the painful and horrible phenomenon of of silence being a form of assent. They could have had a different opinion and just sat quietly while the elders would have listened to the masses. But they chose not to. I'm captured and follow in the world different leaders. And what I notice about different leaders is that all of them have different characteristics and qualifications. But the one element that the real leaders of the world have that are different than those who aren't leaders is the simple ingredient of courage. They just have courage. And whether it's John F. Kennedy, or whether it's Martin Luther King, or whether it's Harvey Milk, they all used their voice to speak up for what they believed in when they easily could have gone with the flow. They easily could have followed the path of least resistance. They easily could have gone with others and been a part of Shtika Kahoda'ah and just made on with their life. But instead, Martin Luther King stood up and shared his dream. And that dream inspired others. And it changed what we did for integration and racial harmony in this country. And Harvey Milk could have easily lived a closeted life or even an outed life without encouraging others to do the same. But he found his courage and spoke his mind and told people that if you are being segregated, if you are being punished, if you are being ridiculed for your orientation, then you must stand up and be with the masses. And he used his voice. And he used his courage. It's a reminder for all of us. Herzl said it best. If you will it, it is no dream. Im tirtsu, enzo agada. But the tirtsu part means you have to use your voice. Because if you don't, you don't lead. Think in your mind for a minute about some of the greatest and most inspirational and most transformative changes that have happened to you and happened to your family. Happened in your life or in the world. They come from one bold or courageous act, I bet. That's what Kalev and Yoshua did. That's what that person did in stopping this rabbi from harming any other boys. And that's what Pope Francis is trying to do in saving the church and trying to restore what we can from those priests and bishops who have covered up 
the crimes that they have committed. If only, if only the rabbis and the elders and the politicians and community leaders had used their voice at that party and Mr. Goldman stayed just for a little bit, maybe there never would have been a destroyed temple. Maybe we never would have been in the diaspora. Maybe our fate would be wildly different. Let's not give that silence a second chance. Let's make sure we use our voices where we can and when we can, that we continue to be inspired by Yoshua and Kalev, by Joshua and Caleb, and that we lead to make the world the place it needs to be and use our voice in strong harmony. Amen.